You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Lauren Fultenberg, and I'm Alyssa Hurst. We're exactly one week out from reaching the conclusion of one of the wildest presidential races in history, so of course we couldn't pass up one final chance to talk election 2020. From virtual conventions and a presidential illness, to tax returns, a laptop scandal, and a now famous fly, it's been memorable to say the least. With the countdown to Decision Day almost at zero, we asked political science professor Seth Maskett, director of DU Center on American Politics and author of a new book, which followed the Democratic Party after their 2016 loss, to join us for a pre-post-mortem. So, Seth, thank you so much for coming back on the Radio Ed podcast to talk politics. We appreciate you coming in. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. So I'd like to start by talking about the fact that this is the last week of the presidential election. And I'm curious what that typically looks like. Are there votes still to be won? Is the mudslinging due to intensify? Is there anything in particular that we should be looking for? There's not a ton of undecided voters left out there. There are some. And the presidential campaigns are are trying to grab them to the extent they can. I'd say what we usually see in you know the last uh, weeks of a presidential campaign, um, typically there isn't much new that happens after the final debate, and you know it usually kind of goes into a holding pattern. Um, everyone sort of knows what arguments the campaigns are going to be making. They have the same sort of attacks on the other other person, and uh, they just kind of uh, run around the country. Uh, making those those same attacks and try and making make their case to the the few remaining voters. Um, we're still living in the shadow of 2016, which was had a an unusual closing, um, where you had then FBI Director Jim Comey uh, releasing a uh, statement that he was investigating Hillary Clinton for email scandal, and that was really a, a very rare thing to see in, in the in basically just days before a presidential election, and that. Um, that did shift things, that shifted public patterns, and it shifted the way the campaigns were, were talking and campaigning. Um, short of something like that, we're just going to be seeing, you know, a, a, a lot of the same until Election Day. One of the things to watch for, I would say, is at, at least, you know, if you're, if you're looking for <laughs> something interesting to follow, would be the patterns in early voting, which really is an unusual feature of, of 2020. There's a lot more early voting. There's a lot more vote by mail and absentee balloting. Um, simply due to the pandemic and a lot of states expanding access to these these alternatives to voting on election day, they don't give us necessarily a great idea of what the final election results will look like um, because the partisan patterns of who actually votes early and who doesn't are, are you know, they're, they're pretty starkly different. But they do give us an idea about voter enthusiasm. They give us an idea about how many people are going to show up at, uh, to vote and, um, you know, just how invested voters are in this. Interesting. So I'd like to talk a little bit about each party's approach to this election, um, because after 2016, a lot has changed. Uh, so let's start with the Republicans. What did their strategy seem to be this time around? So it seems like there's been a Republican strategy for quite a while now to basically portray the Democratic nominee as some sort of a socialist, no matter who that person was. Uh, you know, we've heard this attack on Biden. It, it's it's very similar to what they would have said about, say, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or um, almost any of the other leading uh, Democratic candidates from from last year. Um, and 
you know, in some sense that hasn't really stuck so much to Biden. So they've tried to portray him as, you know, if he's not a socialist, then he's a socialist dupe. Uh, he'll be, he'll be controlled by the socials in his party, etc. And to some extent, uh, at least by the Trump campaign, there seems to be an, an attempt to kind of run a replay of, of the final days of 2016. That is, uh, they've been trying to uh, build up a scandal around Joe Biden, um, uh, trying to have someone in, in, you know, a prominent law enforcement official claim that there's something corrupt uh, about the about the Democratic nominee due to some hacked emails and, and essentially sort of close the election that way. I mean, you know, my impression is it's not really having that kind of an effect, but that that seems to be the um, the strategy so far. And then we can talk about the Democrats as well. Your latest book speaks a lot to some of the soul searching and rebuilding that they've been doing since they lost in 2016. And, and that was such a surprise to so many given the polls. Um, so how did they change their strategy? How did they approach 2020 differently? The Democrats are really still living in the, in the shadow of 2016. Um, they were really very traumatized by the results of that. One of the uh, lessons that they, they, they feel they learned from that uh, election was that they don't want to look divided as a party. Um, they were worried that divisions within the Democratic Party in 2016 that lingered on past the convention, you know, may have hurt them, may have undermined their votes. So they really have wanted to portray a great deal of unity this year. And, you know, that's, you know, they, there really are some important policy differences within the Democratic Party right now. I mean, you know, people like, uh, you know, Joe Biden don't necessarily see eye to eye with people like, say, Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or your other progressives in the party. Um, but they really have been working together to a large extent. They have um, not really risen to a lot of bait to attack each other. One of the things we saw right after Biden clinched the nomination basically in April was that basically Biden's team and the Sanders team kind of reached out to each other and started working together on coming up with basically a common agenda that they could work on for, for the campaign and for governing next year. So. They really were working to, you know, have put together some sort of a coalition and figure out areas of agreement. Beyond that, they, uh, you know, the Democratic approach seems to be, you know, basically to try and repeatedly focus uh, voters' attention on what is, you know, by far Trump's weakest point um, on the coronavirus. Um, his, his polling on how well he's handled the virus has dropped a lot. And it's it's not hard to keep people at keep people's attention focused on that. I mean, you know, given that we're at nearly a quarter of a million deaths at this point, but they're turning people's attention to that a lot. One of the other narratives that Democrats took from 2016, um, there was a concern by some Democrats that they had spent too much time in 2016 focusing on Donald Trump's personality. That they simply spent a lot of time pointing out to people that Donald Trump is is temperamentally unfit for this job, without really going beyond that, without uh, really a broader critique of Republicans or saying why to vote for the Democratic side, and I think they've adjusted their messaging somewhat on that for this year. They're they're talking somewhat about Trump's personality, but more generally about the effect that he's had on the country. They're they're focusing on. The toll that the virus has taken, the toll that um, the economic recession has taken. So, I mean, we have the polls to point to, but I'm curious if you have sort of a judgment of 
whether these strategies for the Democrats and the Republicans are working, if one is working better than the other, if one is having the effect of bringing in undecided voters. I guess what's kind of your assessment of those two strategies? You know, it's it's difficult to say because there's actually, it's been a remarkably stable race if you just look at the polls. Um, Biden was up by about seven points for several months. Basically, since the beginning of October, his, his lead has expanded somewhat to around 10 points. But we haven't really seen a lot of movement in the polls this year, uh, unlike 2016, where they, they actually moved around quite a bit. One of the things that the Biden team has done fairly interestingly is um, at some points been relatively quiet. You know, they, they haven't tried to draw attention to themselves uh, every day. And I think their, their feeling was that Donald Trump is going to monopolize the airwaves anyway, and this is not necessarily helping Donald Trump. He tends to, you know, he'll, he'll draw attention to himself often for things that, are, that he doesn't poll well on. So there's this, I think, belief on the Biden side that, you know, you, you, you don't interrupt your opponent when he's destroying himself. And so I, I think they have stuck to that somewhat, and that has, that has helped keep things somewhat where they are. So... You've mentioned a few of these already, um, but there have been a number of these so-called October surprises, although they've extended beyond October a little bit, um, including the New York Times report on Trump's taxes, which came out in late September, Trump uh, coming down with COVID, and then this alleged Hunter Biden laptop scandal. So how have these kind of played out, and do you see them affecting the way that folks vote next week? Yeah, again, it's been a it's been a pretty stable race. I think one of the um, October surprises I've been expecting was uh, Trump simply declaring that there's a there's a coronavirus vaccine without there actually being one. Um, that that actually hasn't happened yet. Although who knows? We we still have a little bit of time. But you know, we haven't seen a lot of shifting around. The one area where there there has been a shift, as I mentioned, was in early October, and there were basically two things that happened almost at the same time. One was the first presidential debate, which was uh, broadly seen as, as something um, Trump really did not perform well in. He was, um, he was very aggressive. He was interrupting quite a bit. And a lot of uh, polling afterwards suggests that you know, people were overwhelmingly thought that Biden won that debate. Um, that was followed just two days later by Trump revealing that he'd been diagnosed with COVID. I don't know if we can tell exactly which caused it, but um, his his polling position dropped by about three points right around that time. And at least at this point, I have, have yet to recover. And I, I think, you know, my impression is that the, the COVID diagnosis was probably more damaging. Movement from debates tends to be pretty short term. You know, the COVID diagnosis really undermined Trump's own claims about the disease. That is, he'd been saying that um, it wasn't a big deal, that, you know, he's been cautious about it, that the, you know, that the White House has been protecting people and it showed that, you know, he got sick, many people around him got sick, they had to be hospitalized, he had to have unusual experimental uh, medication to, to help him at, a, at, at some fairly perilous moments. Um, so it was a big deal and people weren't safe. While we're on the topic of COVID, it's clear from what we've been seeing unfold and what you've been saying that it's had a massive effect on the election this year. So I'm curious how you think we can understand the impact of COVID on this election when we look back. Uh, so I think we can think of the, you know, the impact of, of, the, of, of COVID on this election in, in two main ways. I mean, one is just simply looking at the polling. Um, 
Biden was actually ahead before uh, the, the virus hit. So if you look at um, matchup polls between Biden and Trump uh, from back from January and February, Biden was already ahead by like four to five points. And so then the virus hits, the virus brings about a you know, massive economic downturn, and then Biden is ahead by like seven to eight points. So we're talking about like, like maybe a three point effect um, going from, you know, a healthy country with a healthy economy to a very sick country with a sick economy. Um, I mean, in, in many ways, it's surprising that it's that modest an, an effect. But you, you could also think of the virus as, as dramatically affecting the way we conduct elections. You know, it, it was interesting that it hit when it did. Uh, that is basically, you know, it, it started really affecting Americans' lives in, in March, by which point the you know, the Democratic presidential primaries were largely wrapped up. And basically, people were seeing Biden as the all but certain nominee at that point. There were still a number of primaries to be held, um, but they weren't necessarily going to be pivotal. And states could experiment in, in different ways they would, they would deal with it. And some, some states moved their primaries to later. Um, you know, some states tried to expand uh, vote by mail or prolong, you know, access and, and, and things like that. And, and we could see different things. Um, but as it was, you know, states have had a lot of time to, to work on this. And some, quite a few states have expanded their ability to, uh, for people to vote by mail, to file no excuse absentee ballots, to, to vote early. Um, and, you know, this is, this has helped, but that's, you know, that's making a huge difference. And importantly, and perhaps unfortunately, the, you know, Democrats and Republicans see this virus and it's told very differently from each other. Democrats uh, tend to be far more concerned about the virus. They, and as a result, they are far more likely to want to vote early or to vote by mail. Um, so we're seeing a real skew in some of the early votes and that, you know, that basically all the people voting early, not all of them, but a lot of the people voting early or voting by mail right now are, are lean Democratic. And a lot of the people who are going to vote on election day lean Republican. So, you know, it'll, it'll eventually sort itself out, but it's, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a very different approach to this across parties. Yeah, Election Day 2020 is certainly going to be an interesting one. Um, I'm, I'm just curious if you think that this is going to impact the timeline. I mean, usually we're all sitting glued to our TVs or our laptops watching the results flow in. Um, obviously, we're kind of already doing that. So do you think we'll have our big answer on November 3rd, or is COVID kind of going to alter the way that this timeline looks? There's a good chance we won't know the outcome on November 3rd, um, the, in, in, in large part because um, mail-in ballots in many states take longer to, uh, to process. In some states, including Colorado, they can, you know, they can basically process them. They can take them out of the envelopes and check their signatures and, and, and do all the things they need to do before counting them well ahead of time. But in a number of states, including, I believe, Pennsylvania, including uh, Michigan, that, that could be close in this election, they basically can't even start processing these ballots until election day. And that's just going to take longer. Um, it'll, it may take several days to figure out who has won some of these, uh, these key states. It's, it's possible this could take till the end of that week. It, it's possible it could take several weeks. I, I doubt it'll take that long, given, given where the polling is now. But it is something that we need to be prepared for. And then maybe sometime before we know who runs, who, you know, who's going to be moving into the White House or not, which party is going to be running the Senate, uh, which party is going to be in charge of several state legislatures. Um, it may just take a while. I, I want to 
dive into the polls a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, the vast majority of them right now are showing Biden pretty well ahead of Trump. And as you said, there hasn't been a ton of movement. Uh, in 2016, we saw sort of a similar story. We saw Clinton pretty well ahead. So are Democrats kind of still convinced they're going to lose? How is that legacy playing into the way they're approaching the election in general and this final week in particular? Democrats are still pretty traumatized by 2016. And this came up a lot, you know, in the research I was doing for my book, a lot of the Democratic activists I was talking to, 2016 really messed them up. Um, it was, you know, a lot of their, the tools that they used to measure elections, a lot of the instincts they've developed were just, were just flat out wrong. Everything told them one thing and, and something else happened. And I think it'll, it'll be a long time before Democrats feel confident in polls again. I think if, if Biden could be up by 15 and they wouldn't trust it, you know, simply because, you know, Hillary Clinton was ahead by quite a bit in mid-October, uh, you know, basically at this time four years ago, coming off the, the final presidential debate. And it wasn't so much that the polls at that time were wrong. It was just, you know, they, she had large leads. The Comey revelations, the email scandal and so forth ended up sort of undermining a lot of that. Um, and a lot of undecided voters ended up breaking toward Trump at the last minute. Um, and so the polls overall that year were honestly quite good. Like the polls had Hillary Clinton leading by about three points and she won by two points. But the problem is they predicted the wrong winner. Um, they, there was a mismatch between the, the electoral college and the popular vote there. And of course the polls were off by a large amount in a few key states, basically Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. It's actually a, a, a rather different race today. For one thing, um, Biden has been leading, you know, both by larger and a more, um, more consistent margin, um, than Hillary Clinton had. So it's, it's, and importantly, his average, but if you just look at the polls, his average vote share is a little bit above 50%, while Hillary Clinton's was maybe around 46 or so percent. So that means even if, you know, most of the undecided voters break for Trump this year, he still doesn't have anything near a majority. Um, so Biden is just in a, in a stronger position in that sense. And one of the other sort of X factors this year is that turnout looks like it's going to be really high. There's a lot of people voting this year. We're looking, you know, I think last time there were, I think 137 million people voted. And now I think forecasts are for possibly like 20 million more people. I got, you know, well, well above 150 million. Um, and it's hard to know exactly who those new voters are, right? I mean, you never know for certain. So that, that makes it a, a little harder to predict. Right. So I'd like to go back to your book a little bit. It focuses heavily on the post-2016 narrative and how it shaped the Democrats over the last four years. So what might a post-2020 election loss narrative look like for either party? Yeah, it's interesting to think about that. Um, you can sort of imagine the contours of a, of a, of a Republican fight, right? You know, if, if Donald Trump loses... You can you can see sort of where these factions might be drawn. There would there would be some people who are um, trying to say that uh, you know within the party that this loss didn't have to happen, the pandemic didn't have to be this bad. Uh, that you know incumbent presidents presidents usually win. If we if we'd nominated someone different, we could have avoided this. And it's hard to know who would be really a leader in that movement right now. I, there, it, interestingly, there are a number of 
um, Republicans or former Republicans who are now more or less working on the uh, on the Democratic side. You know, there's this uh, Lincoln, Lincoln Project people and uh, and some other prominent Republicans who have endorsed Joe Biden. Um, and it's not really clear where they'll end up, but they might end up sort of wanting to fight for their vision of, of what the Republican Party should look like. On the other hand, you will have, um, you know, you would have a, a recently deposed Donald Trump who would be saying, uh, it will almost, you know, almost certainly be saying that he, there was fraud in the election and that he was deprived of a, a, a re-election that was legitimately his and that he should be the, the party's nominee in 2024. You know, I, I think he almost immediately would start running for 2024 at that point. I, I don't have a sense of, you know, how how well that would be received. It's possible that, you know, people within his party are tired of him at that point when he's out of power or that they're still very loyal to him. Um, but there would be some people who would be, um, you know, be happy to sort of take up that uh, that candidacy for him. Um, if this happened on the, you know, if, if Democrats end up losing uh, again in a, in a sort of similar replay um, from 2016, it's it's hard to say what that would be like. I, one of the things I you see in in my book is that Democrats really felt like they did what they needed to do for a win this year. Um, you know, that is um, uh, for a lot of these Democrats, Biden was not their first choice or, or even their second or third they saw him as the, the electability candidate. And they were willing to give up a fair number of things they cared about very dearly for a, 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 a win against Donald Trump. And if they did that, if they, if they gave up on many things and still lose, I think in some ways it depends what that loss looks like. I think it's, it's highly unlikely Biden loses the popular vote just simply where polling is. But if he, you know, if he wins the popular vote by comfortable margin and still loses the electoral college, I think at that point, I think the Democratic argument becomes less about uh, who they nominate and more about how the system has serious biases in it. And it becomes a, uh, an effort to reform the electoral college and, and change some of the, you know, change some of the representational systems in this country, because it's that that starts to look like a serious systematic disadvantage there rather than just picking a bad candidate. Right. That should be really interesting to watch either way. So I, I wanted to bring up something that has been in the headlines pretty recently, um, which is the tampering in the election by Iran and Russia. How does that impact the integrity of our election and the, the potential outcome? I mean, it's a significant concern. It is, I think we should understand it for what it is. It's basically, it's an attempt to, in some ways to intimidate voters, to, um, to influence voters. It's not necessarily an attempt to tamper with election results. Okay, and I think, I th I think we need to be clear about that. Um, there was, I think, uh, you know, some people have a mistaken view of 2016 that, um, you know, the Russians somehow hacked our election results in some states, and there's really no evidence of that. Um, what they did was do, um, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of advertising, a lot of fake, fake postings through social media to try and um, inflame tensions in various places, to try and make Americans seem more divided that they, than they were, um, to try and stoke racial hatred. Um, I think there's, there's some of that going on this year as well. It's definitely problematic. Um, it is something that, uh, you know, we, we need to know about. They, they, you know, some of the evidence we've seen suggests that they're going to try and do this 
close to or shortly after election day to try and undermine people's faith in the election results. That's a, that is a significant concern. People are very, um, uh, you know, kind of wired to believe that already. Those are uh, the sorts of claims that, that Donald Trump himself has already, you know, fanned the flames up quite a bit um, in, in, you know, claiming election fraud. Um, so we need to be cautious about that. But again, we're, we're, we're not talking about actual, like, election result tampering. So just, just as a final piece, 2020, clearly, based on this conversation and having lived through it, has changed so much about not only how we live, but how we're voting, how we're communicating, how the debates are running. Um, so regardless of who wins, do you think the 2020 election will have a lasting impact on future races? Yeah, so I think there's there are a number of ways in which this will be seen as just kind of a one-off election year, um, and they don't necessarily have to follow the rules uh, from this year again. But in other ways, I think we'll, we'll probably see a few uh, a few ongoing shifts. Um, one of the things was the you know the, the conventions were kind of fascinating this year. Um, they you know we saw both parties trying to adapt to a, a largely online environment. You know, in some ways, those were those were suboptimal. Um, it's it's hard to convey support for people with with you know without a real audience in the room. And I, I'm sure they'll they'll want to go back to having you know packed convention halls again as soon as they can. But another way, you know, one of the really nice innovations, uh, like the, when the Democrats did their roll call of the states and just ran around from different state delegations all across the country. That was fantastic. It was a way of just, you know, showcasing different parts of the country and different people in the party. And um, that was a lot of fun. And I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if they end up incorporating something like that again in the future. We're seeing um, some interesting things this year uh, in the use of field offices right now, which is kind of interesting. Um, often the Democrats build more campaign offices across the country than Republicans. Um, and just have more of an effort to actually just knock on people's doors to turn out the vote. This year, that's flipped. Uh, the Biden campaign has done very little of that, in large part because, you know, a lot of Democrats out there, like, don't want someone knocking on their door and talking to them um, in this environment. But the Trump campaign has built up a, a ton of field offices in a lot of states. So that has flipped somewhat, I think. It, but we'll see, you know, what people take out of that. I think we're seeing some new... Um, new types of advertising, some more, you know, online meetups, um, maybe some of that, we'll see more of that going forward. But I think uh, campaigns are, you know, very much hoping for a return to rallies and, you know, actually campaigning in front of people again. <laughs> well, Seth, before I let you go, is there any last words that you want to throw in? If you're listening to this and you haven't sent in your ballot yet, please do so. For more of Seth's insights on the 2020 election, head to our show notes at du.edu slash radioed, where you can get better acquainted with his book and his delightful Twitter feed, among other helpful links. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. James Swearingen arranged our theme. I'm Alyssa Hurst, today's host and Radio Ed's executive producer. This is Radio Ed. <laughs>